this evening's reading could be found on page 1217, and it's from 1 Peter, um, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 to chapter 2 verse 3. That's on page 1217 in the Church Bibles. Therefore, prepare your mind for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to start. Father, thank you for being holy. Thank you for calling us to holiness. Lord, speak to us, mould us, challenge us. And let us know your presence with us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, amongst the, uh, amongst the many great things uh, me and Sarah and the family have experienced about moving uh, to Hartford has been a, a very, very, very small plus, which I've nevertheless appreciated. And it's, uh, it's this. Whenever we drive um, from, from here over to Chester, there's an A road which flies down and... To my shock when I first saw it, you can see all the way over to North Wales. In fact, you can see all the way out to the Irish Sea, and you can see all of the Wirral, and a big part of Cheshire and uh, some of Halton as well. And it's absolutely huge. And I mean, as someone who, uh, I'm from Wirral myself, and um, the kind of north, uh, the, the bit next to Liverpool, if you like. And as someone used to it being the kind of Liverpool conurbation, if you like, the fact that it looks so beautiful, and it, a lot of it is green, and... Uh, it's wonderful, and and this is a very familiar, you know, as, as my stomping ground, it's a very familiar sight. And yet, to see it in that context expanded my vision of it. And it looks really, really nice. I think you might know the bit of road I'm talking about. Um, or if you're into art, 
another example. Uh, about 100 years ago, there was a group called the Precisionists. These guys, and it sounds boring, but these guys were artists who, whose passion was to paint everyday things that were there. So a bit of industrial machinery, a bit of piping, a bit of all these sorts of things. And a lot of it is a bit boring, but the point is that they were seeing afresh something which was very familiar to them and expanding their vision of it. And after a tiny bit of art history, and there's now and again a picture where you do think, yeah, they hit on something there. There is something aesthetically beautiful about that shape, about that bit of machinery, about that bit of piping. It sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Things sometimes are able to expand our vision to make it bigger. And sometimes, perhaps, you have a vision in that way. You see something new for the first time, something familiar, but you see it in a new way, and it gets bigger and more impressive and more amazing. Just before we go on, let's think about a little bit of the context of uh, our letter in 1 Peter here. Uh, and in 1 Peter 1, 6, we're given a good deal of it, aren't we? It says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Persecution for Peter's readers is at hand. And, you know, I can understand that one temptation at such a time um, would be to fashion for yourself a kind of a smaller God, a smaller Jesus, if you like, a domesticated version who is happy to just be a kind of a pocket-sized God of the private realm, behind closed doors, but unrelated to your, to your public persona. A God who it's easier to follow, who wouldn't lead you into any tricky situations. And you know, in the first few centuries of the church's existence, it was a real temptation for Christians, persecuted as they were, to kind of buckle under the strain and compromise in following Jesus. Middle of the third century, there's a, an emperor called Decius, very short-lived, but he wants every member, every member of the Roman Empire to sacrifice to the emperor and to the pantheon. Some Christians did abandon their faith and just did it. Others who decided to try and find a kind of a middle ground as if that's possible when it comes to idolatry and they got one of their non-Christian friends or family to sacrifice for them, pretend they were them. Kind of go and do it, get the certificate, go home. You can live your quiet life as a Christian, you can carry on. It's evidence of a faith in retreat. And you can imagine, you can imagine if we're honest, it's a temptation. For some, Christ is abandoned completely and publicly. For others, it meant not standing for Christ in public. It's an attempt to retain a personal faith while at the same time seeking to avoid flack from those who are opposed to it. If you like, it's a faith which is shrinking. You see, in this passage, Peter is proposing anything but a shrinking faith, isn't he? The complete opposite. He wants to expand the vision. Yes, they know the gospel. His readers are Christians, but he wants to make their vision bigger. He wants them to see it afresh. So how does Peter do this? Well, let's think of it. I'm going to propose that he does it in five ways. And going with the kind of the, the vision theme, he does it in five directions, if you like. Five directions to give a fuller, more spectacular view of the good news of Christ. First of all, 
look further. Look further. This is what he says to the persecuted Christians. And in fact, um, in verse 13, where we see this, he's referring back to much of what he's already said in chapter 1 about the future hope to which Christians are called. And in fact, the therefore right at the beginning of the passage um, tells us that what he says here builds directly upon what has come before. Verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ is revealed. Literally, that phrase, um, prepare your minds, is geared up the loins of your mind. Kind of a, might be an allusion to the Exodus, and in fact, there might be a few allusions to the Exodus as we go on. Um, but it's a very vivid, graphic phrase about, um, about being ready, being prepared. And what is clear from that future promise for the Christian is that it puts into perspective the way he or she thinks now. There's nothing like, everyone knows this, there's nothing like having a goal to focus the mind, is there? It stops you approaching um, your time in a kind of wasteful, frivolous sort of way. You can imagine how compelling a message this is when you have persecuted Christians. Things that are painful, they don't get endured simply by trying to ignore them, can they? In fact, that seems to exacerbate it even more. We know that from life generally. And listen, I I don't like running at all. Some of you may have seen me running around Hartford, but I really don't like it at all. So why do I do it? Well, it's because I like sport. Specifically, I like football, I like rugby. I want to be able to enjoy those things better by being fitter, by being healthier. It's not to do with the pain itself. If someone has got the running bug, please explain to it. Please explain it to me at the end of the service. I am interested. But no, not for me. It's because of something else keeps you going. Think of the end result. Think, in my case, of the sport. But it doesn't just apply to persecution, because any number of earthly concerns we could have could come in and cloud the ultimate future reality that we're headed for. It could be money, reputation, relationships, all of them, any of them, something else. So Peter says, look further. Focus your mind. Be self-control. Reign in your thoughts and focus on what is good. Focus on the eternal. And be sober, he says. That's literally the meaning of that that phrase, be self-control, be sober. Not just in terms of alcohol consumption, but including that as well. But how are we accord value to things in our life? Are they eternal or not? So look further. Secondly, look higher. Verses 14, 17, Peter tells his readers, look higher. And by what, and by that I mean, look to God and his perfect standards of holiness. So that it informs your own conduct. Complete change of behavior is required for Christians. Verse 14, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. A note in passing that probably means his readers were mainly Gentile converts rather than Jewish who lived outwardly, demonstrably pagan lives. So Peter says, no more to the ignorant disobedience You can't just replace it with a degree of behaviour management. You know, the obvious things, the things you can tick off. 
converted pagans, yeah, stop worshipping the local idols, stop doing any of that messing about sexually, which is a part of the ancient world. No, that's not enough. It's more than that. Verse 15, be holy as I am holy. If we're not careful, this is a troubling thought, isn't it? You say, what? We're being asked to be perfect. In fact, a fellow believer I know is a young Christian, as a teenager. He was really bothered by this, um, this, this kind of teaching about being perfect until a more mature Christian just asked him this revealing question. Well, listen, what would you expect a holy God to ask of you? Would he ask you be a bit holy? Be quite holy? Be very holy? No, be holy as he is holy. That's the target. The cross of Christ has dealt with our sin. It goes on to deal with our sins day by day. As we try and fail to live up to this standard, but that's the standard, just the same. Be holy as I am holy. And straight away, you uh, you can probably see how this might throw a challenge out to you know, your average persecuted believer, you want to compromise in some way to make life a little bit easier, just a little bit easier, whilst you quietly remain a professing Christian. No, Peter says, persecution is not the time to try and make God into a smaller, less demanding private deity. Persecution, even persecution, is the time when you seek to obey perfectly to carry your cross with ever-increasing conviction as you follow Christ. Challenging words. But then in verse 17, we're immediately presented with an aspect of that holiness. God the Father who judges each man's work impartially. But more than that, he's here addressed as the Father The father of Peter's readers. And it seems to me that placing the intimacy of calling God Father side by side with the, um, with the impartiality of God the judge kind of helps to avoid that sort of presumptuousness of what you might call a kind of a matey Christianity. You know, uh, God's my mate. He's got my back. We're like this. Uh, what's more, he's going to bless me, whatever, because we're such good mates, really. And you can well imagine such a kind of cosy approach. That would be a temptation, wouldn't it? When your faith's under fire, God's not going to mind. He wants me to be happy. He doesn't want me to risk having my my job lost. He wants me to prosper. So a a little bit of compromise, it's not going to matter that much. Or perhaps a bit closer to home for us, there's that strained relationship which has been there for a while, that recurring habit that latest distraction. God understands me. He knows this is how it has to be at the moment. Well, Peter's words are a challenge to that way of thinking. Be holy, because I am holy. Our holiness, or lack of holiness, matters. And God doesn't turn a blind eye to things just because we're his children. Yes, we are his children, forgiven children, adopted children. But sin is still serious. And so to the last part of verse 17, live reverently as strangers. Strangers. Here in reverent fear. Those who are just passing through. Hold loosely to the things of the world that the world values. Because our final true home 
is infinitely better. So as he looks up, he also looks further. Thirdly, look back. This is what Peter tells them to do in verses 18 to 21. He motivates them to such a holiness of life by directing them to look backwards. So he recounts to them what it took for them to be in relationship with God as their father. Those things deemed precious by the world, gold and silver, specifically in verse 18, are actually perishable. They're not eternal. No matter how reliant humans feel upon them in the here and now, no matter how much they admit that they are reliant upon them, they are perishable and they count as nothing compared to that which actually paid the price of their salvation. Verse 19, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Perhaps another hint from the Exodus story. Again, Peter having that perhaps at the back of his mind. What's more, we read in verse 20 that Christ's incarnation amongst human beings and his death on their behalf was planned. That's what it means here for Christ to be described as chosen. He was foreknown. It was from the very beginning, the plan. From before all creation, it came to pass in these last days for our sake. Don't miss that expression, for our sake. The cost was incredible, not something we could pay. And this helps us to understand, I think, part of the motive to, to live a life pursuing holiness. You see, in our modern age, we're, we're pretty used to standing on our rights when we feel like it, don't we? Uh, you know, you get to kind of older childhood, six, seven, eight, and you, you, that phrase, but it's not fair, becomes part of your vocabulary. And from that point on, you've got a, a sense of what's right and wrong, and it's keenly felt. And so when we, when we get to adulthood and we're paying our national insurance contributions, we're paying our income tax, our VAT and all these things, we feel that when we need to make, when we need the state in whatever form to intervene on our behalf, we feel we're owed because we have made that payment. But you see, if we hadn't paid a penny, any of that tax, and the state still came to our aid when we needed it, we wouldn't be in a position to make demands. Rather, it could make demands of us. And so we might think it would be the same if we had some kind of uh, cosmic national insurance to God for our salvation, and some people, I think, do think this, in gold or silver or whatever, or maybe the odd prayer or, or a bit of obedience, whatever it is. It's just not possible, is it? It's just not an option. Because nothing, certainly nothing perishable, can deal with our sin except the blood of the Lord Jesus. Which he gave for us even when we had no rights at all to it. No rights at all. And so having received such mercy and blessing, we don't make demands of God. He can make demands of us, and he does make demands of us. Be holy as he is holy, to live lives of reverent fear. He paid the price. He bought us. Now we are his. Verses 17 to 18. Live holy, reverent lives because, because those lives, our lives cost so, so much. 
but more than that. Peter doesn't want, wants us to warm our hearts as well, I think. He wants our hearts to be moved. Look again at verse 20. Christ was revealed for your sake, says Peter. We've seen that. It wasn't simply that God wanted to show how merciful, merciful he could be, and he did. And his glory, his own glory is important to himself, utterly, infinitely important. But he wanted us. He wanted us. You and me wanted us to be forgiven and reconciled to himself because he loves us. And when we truly understand the price he paid in Christ, our hearts are moved. Now there's a, a story about Abraham Lincoln and uh, I'm always a bit wary of these kind of anecdotes about historical characters because you never know whether they're true or not, but I do hope this one's true. Um, but there's a, a story where he, apparently Abraham Lincoln uh, saw a, a female slave girl on, on sale. And obviously Abraham Lincoln being opposed to slavery, it was a massive surprise when he started bidding for her. He bought her and, and you know, he, he actually won the bidding and he, he paid the price. He bought this slave girl. And once he bought her, he said, okay, you're free to go. And she was kind of incredulous. Free to go? What does that mean? Anywhere? With anyone? At any time? Whenever? Yeah, of course, that's what it means to be free. And then she chose to follow and serve him. She chose to go with him. I hope that story's true. But it makes a really good point. When we see what it cost... When we see the beauty of who paid the price, we follow him, we serve him. And note too in in verse 21, Peter's emphasis on on this faith is in God. Through what Christ did, our faith is in God. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now, remember, it's easy sometimes to think Jesus is the one who understands me. Jesus is the one who's with me. And the Father, perhaps we, if we're not careful, we think of him as distant somehow. But this verse is teaching us, yes, the same Father who demands our holiness, requests it of us, is the same Father who devised our salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit utterly united in causing our salvation. We trust in God. We trust in Christ. And so, fourthly, look around. Look around. I know what you're thinking. Where do I get this one? Doesn't doesn't jump out, does it? Well, hang on. We'll get there. Let's read verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply. And what I mean by look around is actually physically look around. Why don't you take a moment to look around at those around you? Yeah? Yeah, great. You're not alone, if it wasn't obvious before. And um, by actually now physically look around, you can see the application. 
Deepen in your love for each other. Deepen in your love for each other. You have a sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. Having been saved so as to love each other, and a life of love is an element of our salvation as much as it is a demand of it. That's part of our salvation. Now work to love each other. And we can see here a practical application of Peter's imperative, which he's already noted. We should be holy as he is holy. And we've just seen that God of holiness sacrificed his son out of love for us. Now we emulate that love one to another. And this is, of course, familiar to us. Don't we? we know that, don't we, as Christians? We know from Jesus himself, love of neighbor, the second most important commandment. And love is a mark of his disciples. People will know, Jesus says, that you're my disciples if you love each other. But what's perhaps less familiar here, and which took a bit of time to get my head around, is the, um, is the motivation Peter here gives for the love. And that's in verse 23. That important little word, for. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. At which point you think, like I did for about two days, how is the eternal nature of God's word related to my loving others? How does that work? Well, think about it. We tend to read the Bible very individualistically, like it's talking to me, and it is, but it's talking to a community. It's talking to brothers and sisters together, plural. You and all those, you, you, and everyone you had a, a quick look at a moment ago speaks to us communally as well as individually. Everyone who's uh, accepted the word of the gospel has experienced a, a work be good in them which lasts into eternity. What's the nature of that work? Well, that's where Peter's very helpful quotation from Isaiah comes in. Fantastic it is. 4, 24. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord stands forever. And he adds a line himself, and this is the word which was preached to you. You see, whereas, whereas the present creation and human beings in their fallen sinful state, um, in, in terms of their earthly life, they're transient. But the word of God in the gospel declares that eternal life in all its fullness is available in Christ. Realized by the Spirit's power. Therefore, you and all those around you in the pews, you are going to live in eternity with the person to the left and to the right of you. Why do you think about that for a few seconds? Yeah, it's it's an amazing, profound thought. And more than that, you will love them perfectly. Now, I know myself that feels difficult to believe sometimes with you know when you're caught in an irritable mood and you think do you know some people who I'd just rather avoid you know in our darker moments maybe you think the same but not only will we live with fellow brothers and sisters for all eternity we will love them perfectly and be loved by them perfectly that's where you're heading That's where you're heading. And so, says Peter, the eternal nature of our calling, the eternal nature of the word of God which is at work in us means that we work 
to outwork that love now with an eye to eternity. Be holy because I am holy in practice. You know, and this is this is a challenge for us communally as churches. I think with, uh, you know, it seems all common. It's very common that it's very sad. Um, and as a teenager, I left a church myself. Um, but when people leave churches, often because of it's not doctrinal or anything like that. But sometimes it can be personal. You know, falling out of cares. And it's just it's just simpler. We've got churches, and you know. Every half a mile you find a church. It's simpler to up and leave and go elsewhere. But that's not going to be an option in eternity, believe it or not. So we don't live in the light of eternity now by doing it now. See, how much differently we might approach problems like this if we saw them as an opportunity, unbelievably, as an opportunity to experience a bit more of what heaven will be like in the present. Also note here the certainty which Peter tells us comes from our receiving the imperishable seed of God's word. That final line of the Isaiah quote and Peter's line of explanation which follows. Let's have a look at verse 25 just once more. But the word of the Lord stands forever and this is the word that was preached to you. The gospel message, that is. Get used to the idea that matters of any and every description in the universe are settled by God's word. It stands forever. Now, for Christians, that is so heartening because it means that if God says in Christ you are righteous, then you are righteous. You don't question it. There's no back chat. It has been declared. And that's what he's promised for those who trust in Christ. This is countercultural. And indeed, there's a. You may have heard that story about Billy Graham when he uh, visited Australia. And he was on. He went on a radio show. And he was chatting for a while. Uh, he was being interviewed. And at one point, he said, I know I'm going to heaven. It's definitely, I'm go- I know I'm going to heaven. And you know what happened then? The switchboard jammed. There's phone calls galore from everywhere. And what, you know, just loads and loads of phone calls. And they were kind of of the type of, how on earth can this man say he knows he's going to heaven? How can, you know, as if it was an arrogant thing to say, like, how can you, just outrage. And part of it is because, in our fallen state, we still work on the old works, good versus bad, have I done enough good versus another bad. But also, it's that not, you know, non-Christians don't have a concept of this word of God being a surefire thing. That in Christ and through what he has done, there is a certainty. Certainty that the world can't understand, which those people who phoned up regarding Billy Graham don't understand. And this final description of the eternal nature of God's word leads to our final look category. Look inside. Look inside? What? Yeah, this one's not that obvious, you might think, either. But, well, bear with me. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. Begins with another, therefore. 
And I think it could almost be Peter giving us an application of all he said thus far. Verse 1, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. All things which should be shunned in a life pursuing the holiness of God, living in reverent fear of him. And perhaps most specifically, they're, they're an application of what he's just said about love, given that they're all relational sins, aren't they? Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And then he goes on in verse 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And notice that Peter calls all the believers he writes to babies, regardless of their maturity as Christians, because, of course, compared to the state of development they're headed toward, in the end they are babies. And Paul, as we've seen in, in Philippians 2, actually makes this point as well. Maturity, we know we're mature by knowing we're not mature. But what is this pure spiritual milk we're to crave? It's not immediately obvious, is it? But I think the, the immediate verses before kind of tell us we've been talking about the word of God the last three or four verses and we know elsewhere Jesus himself says man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. There's a sense in which God's word is food. And this is where the final look comes in. It should be obvious. Look inside. Look inside. Look inside. We have God's word. And God's word expands our vision in the ways we've been outlining and is living and active uniquely because the author who wrote it is living and active. God himself. And he's able to speak these ancient words with power into our lives. Thus, we, we might grow up into our salvation, having tasted that the Lord is good. This last line emphasizing that although what Peter has been saying is certainly a challenge to us, a challenge to expand our vision in multiple directions, the promise of God is ultimately one of incredible blessing both now and into the future. Uh, we thought at the beginning a little bit about how this is a letter written to a, a church facing persecution. And that um, far, far from encouraging that temptation for Christians to make their faith a little bit more palatable, a little bit more lukewarm, a little more dilute, Peter tells them to make it bigger, expand it, see it for what it is, marvel at it, know the depth, the height all of it and take hold of the gospel with both hands it's worth mentioning here um, that in the you know in the coming decades we might find ourselves in a not dissimilar situation not as harsh perhaps but you know occasionally the odd story comes up a few examples that hit the you know been in the newspapers on the TV in the last 10 years of a certain type of pressure to put our faith into retreat for the sake of adherence to, to the state or to some idea of a secular pluralist way of thinking. There's been a handful of sackings, admittedly not many, one or two maybe even, just a few sackings, 
that have come from, or, or and indeed arrests as well, just from espousing views or wearing things that don't quite fit with the worldview uh, which we see around us. I'm loath to call it persecution when I think about the persecution of those around the world who suffer for the Lord Jesus at the moment, but but it might in time become such. It might. And if it does, will we carve, will we make ourselves a private pocket-sized God who can be domesticated, a God who doesn't mind our bending the rules in sacrificing to Caesar or whatever else, or will we seek to expand the vision, to marvel at it, to look at the gospel with wonder and of the God who declares it to us? And in fact, it's a question for us whether we're persecuted or not, isn't it? Will we expand our vision? Will we look forward, forward, for you this is backwards, forward, forward to the enormity of his future promise, up to pursue his no compromise holiness, back or back, to the extreme costliness of what he did to save us, when we look around to love those we will share eternity with, when we look inside his word where we can find sustenance. It's what he calls us to do. It also should be what we desire because we have tasted, it's the last verse, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I think if we did expand our vision, we'd find it transformative. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are no holds barred, God. Thank you that you are not a pocket-sized idol which we carve ourselves and which just reflects our own persons, but you are a God who, um, who has done awesome, incredible things to save us. In the Lord Jesus, by your power, Spirit's power. And you are a God who demands it, gives us an awesome calling calls us into an awesome life, an awesome sense of community and fraternity, an awesome word. Thank you for all of it, Lord. We pray now, and in the light of the the context of this letter, should we ever face in this country in the coming decades persecution, Lord, you would call us to that bigger vision, not a smaller one. By the power of your spirit we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow.